Avram Finkelstein never intended to call himself an artist. After he dropped out of the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, he felt that working in the high art world was too detached from what was going on with the normal working people around him. After school, he turned away from art and got a hairdressing job, a good living of concrete service. This was, in many ways, a return to form for Finkelstein. From his birth in 1952, he was raised to identify with the struggles of the lower classes. His parents, which he suspects may have been closet communists, got him involved in working people's campaigns at an early age, and he went through his upbringing with the sense that the proper way to meet injustice was with a fight. As a teenager, he was involved in anti-Vietnam protests, making his first political poster for an anti-violence protest. After a formal yet decidedly countercultural education at art school, his critiques of the art world's classism, racism, and sexism ultimately proved too much for him to continue being a part of it. So how, then, does the poster he and the Silence Equals Death Collective created serve as the face of the AIDS activist movement and end up in art museums around the world? what began as a call to action for those suffering under an unresponsive political, religious, and corporate hegemony turned into a defining image for the then-nascent movement. Silence Equals Death has had multiple lives, from a poster to buttons and shirts to stencils and neon. It became a symbol of the growing rage and defiance that ultimately spilled out into mass protest. The image galvanized an entire movement, and today it stands as a symbol of resilience in the face of overwhelming odds. For those of us, including me, who didn't live through the early AIDS epidemic, it's important to paint a picture of what it looked like. The first cases of AIDS in the United States were noticed in 1981, when young gay men in Los Angeles and New York City started coming down with a strain of pneumonia associated with a deficient immune system, as well as aggressive and rare strains of cancer. Causes were hard to pin, but the general association of gay men with unusual immune deficiency was becoming clear. Later that year, the first reports of similar illnesses in IV drug users were reported, with hemophiliacs not far behind. By the end of the year, 337 cases of this immune deficiency had been reported, with 120 already dead. Without clear guidance, the reaction towards AIDS patients was highly stigmatized. In a time where homophobia was much more rampant, those with AIDS were afraid to use their medical insurance for fear that their employers would learn about their sexuality and status. Hospitals, afraid to treat AIDS patients due to fears of transmissibility, had months-long wait times for AIDS sufferers. Worse, nurses would effectively abandon AIDS patients, treating them reluctantly and in excessive protective gear. Congress convened to issue funding for researching this new disease in 1982, but it was stalled in committee and wasn't passed until late 1983. Larry Kramer, an invaluable advocate for AIDS research, described the abysmal situation with his clear-eyed anger. Quote, After almost two years of an epidemic, the cause of AIDS remains unknown. After almost two years of an epidemic, there is no cure. 
Hospitals are now so filled with AIDS patients that there's often a waiting period of up to a month before admission, no matter how sick you are. And once in, patients are now more and more being treated like lepers as hospital staffs become increasingly worried that AIDS is infectious. Suicides are now being reported of men who would rather die than face such medical uncertainty. And the appalling statistic that 86% of all serious AIDS cases die after three years' time. If all of this had been happening to any other community for two long years, there would have been, long ago, such an outcry from that community and all its members that the government of this city and this country would not know what had hit them. End quote. Still, there were trigger points for an increased outcry at the treatment of AIDS patients, even as America rejected and repressed its AIDS sufferers. Ryan White, a teenage hemophiliac who contracted AIDS from a tainted blood transfusion, drew national attention to the fact that schools were banning children with AIDS from attending. Rock Hudson, famous movie and TV star, was the first high-profile celebrity to come out with his diagnosis, outing himself, and donating a large sum of money to AIDS research upon his death in 1985. Even though Rock Hudson was a close friend of the president, it took six years after the question of AIDS being dodged and joked about in the White House press room for Ronald Reagan to mention AIDS publicly, after 21,000 deaths. Religious figures and conservative pundits readily addressed AIDS as a punishment for homosexuality and drug use. William F. Buckley, creator and editor of the National Review, chillingly described his solution to the problem of AIDS. Quote, Everyone detected with AIDS should be tattooed in the upper forearm to protect common needle users and on the buttocks to prevent the victimization of other homosexuals. End quote. AIDS was, essentially, a death sentence for those who acquired it. Kramer's description of the desperation felt by early AIDS sufferers was echoed by Finkelstein in the opening chapter of his book, After Silence, A History of AIDS Through Its Images, which is my primary source for this episode. In it, he describes the horror and devastation of caring for, and eventually saying goodbye to, his partner, Don Yowell. The pain of confronting the death of his partner, sworn to secrecy, is achingly elucidated in a description of their ocean voyage to Japan, a fulfillment of Don's obsession with the Queen Elizabeth ocean liner. Even more poignant is the description of Don's deathbed, where friends and family gathered to say goodbye in his final rally. Terribly, Finkelstein's suffering as a result of Don's death extended past the loss of a loved one. He was shunned by Don's family as his condition worsened. Finkelstein describes the impact of Don's diagnosis on the relationship with his family, saying how, quote, month by month, my identity as Don's soulmate drained away with his health, and I became a stand-in for the illness that had entered our lives, or worse, was considered the cause of it. Within months, I went from the inner circle to being the sole focus of waiting room shouting matches. Towards the end, I was told I was no longer welcome in their house. End quote. Finkelstein's dilemma was indicative of a very common problem among the partners of AIDS sufferers. Without legal connection to his loved one, he was able to be shut out in the hospital and in the home. 
After Don's death, Finkelstein arrived at his apartment to find all of Don's things cleared out, with no regard for how he would react, his needs, and his desire for keepsakes. Left without a partner, distraught at how his place in Don's life was effectively erased, Finkelstein relied on a network of friends to get him through the acute grieving process, although he notes that he has never quite gotten past it, as most who have lived through the death of a partner can attest to. Finkelstein notes in his memoir that politicization is the process of continually taking your own next step, end quote. The Silence Equals Death Collective, in essence, was the next step beyond grief into action. After Don's death, he kept up with Jorge Socaras, a musician friend whose partner, unbeknownst to him, had also died of AIDS. Socaras invited his friend Oliver Johnston along to a dinner meetup with Finkelstein, and the first half of the collective met for the first time. The conversation centered around AIDS and their anger at the government's inaction around the crisis. As they found comfort in the expression of their shared rage, they decided to form a group based on consciousness raising, an activism approach used by feminist groups throughout the 60s and early 70s. They each invited a new member that no one else knew, and the group met again, with Chris Leone, Charles Kreloff, and Brian Howard rounding off the team. Beginning in restaurants but quickly shifting to private gatherings, they discussed fears around sex, anger at the silence around AIDS, and their own individual grieving processes. Finkelstein quickly realized that although the group met without the intent of direct action, they quickly focused in on the political ramifications of AIDS. Notably, the silence from political and medical figures on the subject. They quickly realized that they were in the middle of a political crisis, and Finkelstein saw the potential for them to make a political statement. He pitched the idea of creating a poster, to which the highly artistic group immediately agreed. They had realized that the silence around AIDS was intentional, and this was their stab at breaking it. The poster was an attempt at reaching people where they lived cutting through the barriers of communication that class, race, and community built up. In deciding the goals of the poster, Finkelstein said that, quote, the poster needed to simultaneously address two distinctly different audiences with a bifurcated goal, to stimulate political organizing in the gay and lesbian community, and to simultaneously imply to anyone outside the gay community that we were already fully mobilized, end quote. Without the institutional force of ACT UP, which had yet to be formed, there was no widespread awareness about the injustices surrounding the gay community. Even in the gay community, the lack of government support for development of AIDS treatments wasn't being circulated as the true problem behind the AIDS crisis. Although support groups and small advocacy groups like the gay men's health crisis had already come to be, there had yet to be a cultural reckoning with government inaction on the issue of AIDS. Without the widespread activation of the gay community, the poster had to stir them to action. That said, there was no time to organize without also stimulating agitation among the rest of the city. In order to address both concerns, they had to create a sense of authority letting the queer community know that they were needed to create public resistance, while implying that the resistance was already fully formed. When it came to the themes of the poster, the issue of creating an inclusive message was paramount. 
the poster needed to transcend differing racial and socioeconomic identities in the gay community and reflect a universal call to action. With that in mind, the collective quickly realized that concrete representation was too alienating and focused on using a symbol that encompassed the entire community. They considered and discarded the rainbow, which they hated, too positive, too hippie, too cliche, the lambda, a Greek letter adopted by gay men's groups in the 1970s with a history going back to gay Greek soldiers who were accompanied by their lovers into battle, and the labrys, a pair of crossed axes used as a symbol for lesbianism. The images were either too exclusive or laden with baggage that went against the message they were trying to send. The entire collective was disturbed by William Buckley's suggestion of tattooing AIDS sufferers, which closely mirrored the tattooing of prisoners during the Holocaust. With that in mind, the image of the pink triangle, used to denote gay men during the Holocaust, emerged as their choice. Wary of the Holocaust metaphor, they liberated the symbol from being too directly associated with the Holocaust through specific design choices. Changing the color from pink to fuchsia gave the triangle more of a New Age connotation, while flipping the triangle upwards was an accident that came out of not knowing which direction it faced in its old life. No one looked it up, but once they realized it was wrong, they decided to own it as a design choice. Although they were afraid to embrace such a heavy symbol, no one could accuse them of being hyperbolic in a time where monitoring and detention of AIDS patients was being openly discussed as a way to deal with the crisis. They decided on a pitch black background to make a strong statement with the triangle and make the text pop. In the busy environment of New York City streets, the visual space that the black background enabled gave it a sense of separation from the rest of the hustle and bustle. As for the text, the process of collective discovery that birthed that pivotal slogan is worth quoting in full. Finkelstein describes the conversation in detail. Quote, What about gay silence is deafening, I said, reading a note I had made in my journal. The New York Times had used the phrase, quote, deafening silence in a news article about a different political question, and I'd written it down. How about silence is death? Oliver immediately called out. I remember how this phrase sounded in his southern accent. No, no, it should be silence equals death, I believe either Charles or Chris blurted out. Wait, wait, what about an equal sign? Silence equals death. Everyone jumped up at the same time in such an instantaneous clamor of agreement. I can't say for sure who shouted that out, but I am positive you could hear a ruckus from Jorge's living room window all the way down to Avenue A. End quote. The conversation that led to Silence Equals Death as a slogan was indicative of the process of individuality meeting universality that created the collective in the first place. Finkelstein's pain came out of his own individual trial of loss due to AIDS, and his anger at the way he and his lover were treated was formed in profound isolation. As he tapped into that pain in the original meeting with Jorge and Oliver, he began to realize that his experience was a shared one, one that could create community even as it destroyed his partnership. Each member of the collective brought their own piece of anger, grief, and desire for change, leading to the potent creative power that resulted in the Silence Equals Death poster. The intense volley that led to the slogan came out of an individual spark, but the result was entirely one of collaboration. 
to the point where Finkelstein can't even pin who exactly created the final product. This process of forming collective action from individual need is the fundamental basis of any political action and a potent formula for artists to emulate. The rejoinder text below the slogan was left to Finkelstein and Jorge and was meant to be definitive yet general. The text reads as follows, quote, Why is Reagan silent about AIDS? What is really going on at the Center for Disease Control, the Federal Drug Administration, and the Vatican? Gays and lesbians are not expendable. Use your power. Vote. Boycott. Defend yourselves. Turn anger, fear, grief into action. End quote. The point was not so much to lay the blame on specific individuals, but to use them as stand-ins for political, pharmaceutical, and religious inaction on the AIDS crisis. Although Reagan would later become a more specific focus of hatred and blame, the intention was to accuse the institutions who had been silent out of anti-gay bias. The pleas to become actively involved in the fight for a cure were meant to leave room for whatever came next. The text was purposefully much smaller than the slogan, forcing an intimate contact with the poster in order to read it. In that way, the poster also served a bifurcated goal. Visually, it stood out in a busy street, on foot, or from a passing car. At the same time, there was possibility of connection to the message, even in a public space. Finkelstein wrote that, quote, silence equals death was meant as a conversation starter, the first in a series calling for escalating political responses. From its inception, it was a part of a campaign intended to propose violent resistance, I wanted to call for riots in the 1988 election year, end quote. You may be surprised, as I was, to hear that the intention behind these words was to leave violence on the table. That said, in the context of the early AIDS epidemic, the feeling can hardly be dismissed as excessive. With gay men and women dying at unprecedented rates with no end in sight, defending yourself takes on radical meaning. With the poster draft completed, the collective tackled the next step, distribution. It was important to them to reach a diverse audience, and they planned their distribution accordingly. With the help of snipers, gray market poster distribution teams, they targeted neighborhoods that had large gay populations and meeting points, as well as art and publishing centers. In addition, the collective approached queer institutions in person in the hopes of placing posters or getting press coverage. The reaction was mixed at best. Some, eager to give any help they could to potential progress on the plague, happily gave space for the poster. Others, scared to spark conversation about such a fearful topic in their bars, refused. Others, supportive in general, thought the poster was too vague and didn't know how it would help anything. In a pre-act-up era, advocating for a new level of protest wasn't common, nor clearly welcome. The organizations already working to fight for gay rights and issues needed all the help they could get, after all. Back in the 1980s, quote, people had very set ideas about what constituted a lesbian and gay politics, and we were advocating a political sea change, a kind of unnamed underground with a campaign of radical resistance in mind, end quote. The message that silence equals death was advocating had yet to find an effective messenger. Even still, the posters were a presence in New York, with the bold and direct design popping against the crowded and dense landscape of the city. 
After a three-week run, the collective thought the poster had had its moment. Following the distribution of Silence Equals Death, the collective continued to meet and plot how to influence the course of the AIDS crisis. Hearing that Larry Kramer, whose words you heard at the beginning of this episode, was speaking, they decided to substitute their regular meeting for that talk. He delivered one of his firebrand, call-to-action speeches that made him a legend, demanding that the audience take action then and there to help end this crisis. A spontaneous action group formed, and agreed to meet two days later to take next steps. At the first meeting of what would come to be known as ACT UP, the Silence Equals Death poster was mentioned, and the half of the collective that was there took credit in public for the first time. The same qualities of rage, dissatisfaction with the systems holding up progress of AIDS research, and the desire to act that permeated the Silence Equals Death collective were swimming in that ACT UP meeting, and Finkelstein could sense the potential of the group. Here was a group of people ready to take on the homophobic institutions that were standing still on the death of the gay community, and they were determined to act. Although the question of how far they would go in their pursuit of an end to the crisis was still up in the air, Finkelstein and the rest of the collective quickly became attached to this group, embedding themselves in the inner workings. Finkelstein served on the logistics and coordination committees, plotting actions and setting the agenda for meetings, while the other members of the collective helped with outreach and coalition building. They could see in ACT UP the potential for consequential action and a clear extension of their consciousness-raising principles. Unbeknownst to them, ACT UP would also seize on their image to galvanize their organization. As Finkelstein put it, quote, we had delivered silence equals death into the commons, and I realized, there and then, that ACT UP was the next phase of our consciousness-raising project. We had designed silence equals death. ACT UP was about to create it." End quote. Silence equals death was by no means the only political poster that accompanied the ACT UP movement, and many of them would later be designed by the Grand Fury Collective, which Finkelstein would be a member of as well. Still, Silence Equals Death took on a life of its own, morphing into different forms and coming to serve as a stand-in for an entire movement. As much as it was encouraged by Finkelstein, it was very much a decentralized process. After the posters got some recognition, Finkelstein offered to create buttons as a way to bring the message of Silence Equals Death into spaces that weren't accessible to a poster. The committee he was on didn't want to shell out the money without proof that they would sell, so he offered to buy the first thousand himself. At their next demonstration, he sold out. It meant axing the rejoinder text, but it allowed for those passionate about the cause to bring a statement of support and defiance with them in their daily lives. Shortly after Finkelstein was convinced to convert the wall poster into a mobile, demonstration-ready version mounted on foam core. Look at any video of an ACT UP demonstration, and you're likely to see that sign rising above the chaotic mass of people. Silence Equals Death stickers were sold by the roll, and everyone was instructed to plant a sticker next to any one that they saw. They were subtle forms of guerrilla warfare, allowing people to show support in an anonymous yet bold way. Silence Equals Death covered subway turnstiles, mailboxes, and ATMs all over the city. The reach was truly impressive. 
There were even some stickers that made their way into the Pentagon building, thanks to some brave activists. It was simple, quote, A handful of activists with a few rolls of stickers were able to create a sense of ACT UP's omnipresence, end quote. And omnipresence was the goal. T-shirts, stencils, banners, every iteration designed to let the world know that ACT UP was here and that the silence around the AIDS crisis must end. It was aided by the press, who seized on the symbol as a shorthand for ACT UP's demonstrations. Within a short period of time, silence equals death was the de facto symbol of the movement. Finkelstein saw how it took over. Quote, the consistent framing by media outlets of the image as a logo effectively compacted the fuller dimensions of its creation and usage, which came out of an extremely fluid collective dynamic. It was part of a collective dialogue, a blossoming set of shared realizations that grew from individual impulses into a communal identity. Silence Equals Death was organically agreed upon over a four-month period, with no formal conversations about it on the floor of ACT UP whatsoever. End quote. However varied the usage of Silence Equals Death was, it was always within the confines of political demonstration. The aesthetic dimensions of the poster were secondary, subservient to the express point of helping the AIDS activist movement. That's why it was so surprising to Finkelstein when he was approached by William Orlander, the director of the New Museum in New York, who wanted ACT UP to do an installation. A very skeptical Finkelstein grilled him on the conditions of this installation and found that there were absolutely none. They had a blank check to occupy the museum's corner and window display for eight weeks. They could protest in the street outside, wheat paste the building, go after museum sponsors, anything they wanted. Finkelstein was initially hostile to the idea. After his lackluster experience at school, he loathed the art world and didn't see how engaging with it would further the movement. Still, he was convinced that it was too big of a decision to make unilaterally, so he pitched it on the floor of the next ACT UP meeting. A group formed that was eager to work on the project, so he got them going and then bowed out. He intended to have nothing to do with it, but was drawn back in when they asked his permission to use Silence Equals Death as the crowning piece of the installation as a neon sign. He reluctantly agreed, explaining that, quote, As a matter of our political practice, we had come to consider any use of the image to be in line with our consciousness-raising objectives, even uses we disagreed with. And so we said yes. End quote. The resulting display, entitled Let the Record Show, was a multimedia installation that juxtaposed images of the Nuremberg trials with quotes from contemporary religious and political figures arguing for repressive and homophobic policies in light of the AIDS crisis. Front and center was William Buckley's call for the tattooing of AIDS patients. The designers of the installation, soon to be known as the Grand Fury Collective, doubled down on the Holocaust imagery that had been used in Silence Equals Death. Indicting the people of the day in the eye of history was a bold move for a nascent group like ACT UP, but one that bears out 32 years later. Finkelstein attended the opening night of the display and found the event to be a watershed moment in his perception of Silence Equals Death as a piece. 
Contemplating the evolution of the image, he reminisced that, quote, silence equals death had slowly morphed over a two-year period from an impulse to a call to arms to a logo, and now here it was, a trade sign, end quote. Finkelstein's rejection of the art world had come full circle, and surprisingly, it was the art world that had embraced him. Silence Equals Death had become integrated into the structure that Finkelstein had tried to move away from. The circumstance was in every way aligned with his goals, to raise awareness, challenge comfortable political and cultural figures, and deliver the urgency of the crisis to people all across the New York spectrum. Still, there was a distinctly different aesthetic among the Grand Fury Collective. Although the aim was still centered on helping in the fight against AIDS, they began to deal increasingly in terms of cultural production, influencing the discourse around AIDS through works of art activism that dealt with the human aspect of the AIDS crisis. Silence Equals Death was just the beginning, for Finkelstein and for ACT UP. Finkelstein would go on to create and collaborate on various political posters, demonstrations, and art campaigns with the Silence Equals Death Collective and the Grand Fury Collective under the umbrella of ACT UP until they broke off in 1990. ACT UP would go down in history as a major force for development in the AIDS crisis, amending the pharmaceutical procedures to allow earlier access to life-saving drugs, lowering medication costs, and provoking government action on funding and care. The struggle for a treatment continued through the discovery of protease inhibitors and antiretroviral treatments that prolonged the life and health of HIV-AIDS patients. Safe injection sites and needle exchanges cut down on transmission rates among IV drug users. HIV became a chronic condition as opposed to an inevitable death sentence. Quality of life rose, and the gay community's historic acts of resistance resulted in the overcoming of one of the biggest epidemics in the 20th century. Or at least, that's what they say. The truth is, HIV-AIDS is nowhere near over. 36,000 people are estimated to have contracted HIV in 2018. 1.1 million people live with the disease in the U.S., which is pretty staggering for a highly developed country like ours. Transmission is highest in Black and Latinx communities, largely due to lack of comprehensive sex education in schools and lack of access to condoms. The monthly cost of treating HIV can cost between $1,500 and $4,500 a month, depending on the availability of generic medications and what treatments you're on. Efforts to find a cure have slowed to a halt. Case law around disclosure has solidified around biased notions of HIV transmission and risk, punishing people who live with HIV. So many people live in fear of stigma, unable to tell people and receive support for their HIV-positive status. Progress has been made in every aspect of the fight against AIDS. Still, there is no reason to sequester the work of Silence Equals Death in the past. People are still dying, and we've gone back to our silence on the issue. Finkelstein, thankfully, has not. His work continued throughout the mid-90s with the Grand Fury Collective, challenging the likes of George H.W. Bush, the Vatican, and the FDA. He confronted homophobia head-on and kept the fire under the ass of every institution that was reluctant to combat the AIDS crisis. 
As the work continued, he began to shift his focus to society's treatment of HIV-AIDS patients, as well as the internal divisions in the queer community brought on by serostatus and intersectional factors. Moving beyond visual art, Finkelstein continued his artistic activism by staging what he calls flash collectives, bringing together one-day collectives of activists to create spontaneous public actions and posters on HIV-AIDS issues and beyond. His contributions to ACT UP's legacy have also continued, with heavy involvement in the ACT UP Oral History Project and the publication of his book, After Silence, A History of AIDS Through Its Images, which I highly recommend for a deeper dive and owe this episode to. I would surely hope that Finkelstein has learned to accept his role and title as an artist, but the evolution of silence equals death brings up all sorts of questions about the utility and boundaries of art making. Silence Equals Death was created as an act of political resistance, a lashing out at the powers that be over the rage and grief sparked by the AIDS crisis. Its adoption as ACT UP's unofficial logo, and its subsequent induction into the artistic canon of the AIDS movement, came with a reduction of the context and immediacy that the poster originally carried. Every iteration, from buttons to banners, traded one effective aspect for others, all in the effort to advance the cause. My description and analysis of Silence Equals Death as a work of art robs it of its original fire, even as it preserves the work as a piece of cultural capital. That said, Finkelstein couldn't have expected it to stay perfectly still once the collective put it out into the world. What started as the conscious expression of six gay men dealing with the AIDS crisis in their own lives became a lightning rod for a collective uprising that swept the country. As any work lands with an audience, its meaning and context are bound to change. There is no final message on the AIDS crisis, and there is no point thus far where silence equals death has failed to hit home for widely varying people, places, and moments in time. Finkelstein wouldn't want us to get bogged down in how silence equals death's meaning has changed over time, or how each evolution added this and dropped that and helped with the other. For him, the point of the work was the effort itself, the struggle to give voice to the voiceless. In the final chapter of his book, he asks us, quote, to step away from any narrative that constructs ACT UP in terms of discrete accomplishments, to make room for alternative narratives, ones that suggest political engagement might be closer to a series of gestures than to objects, gestures that are the antithesis of ownership. I'm also asking you to disregard the objectness of the posters described here and consider them as gestures too. As the person who was advised by everyone I spoke to about Silence Equals Death before ACT UP formed that the poster would make no sense to the world simply because the world had yet to make sense of AIDS. But that is what the poster was designed to help it do. Gesture may have been what was missing. And the poster was one such gesture. End quote. As the world barrels along into the future, there are innumerable catastrophes that will require us to stand up and fight for the future we want. The need that underlied the Silence Equals Death Collective was the need to make work that could rise to the crisis in front of them. The point was never to have a famous poster. 
It was to do something, anything, to help the world find its way. The evolution of silence equals death from personal statement to universal call to action is a prime example of how dealing with one's own struggles can be the catalyst for communicating with the world at large. So, what is it that you care about? What gesture are you going to make towards the world you want? There's no time for it to wait. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to keep up with the show, uh, hear about any new episode releases, and get some behind-the-scenes info about the process of creating the show and hear more about the figures that I talk about, you can follow me on Instagram at starvingartpod. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you gather some strength and encouragement from the work that I'm doing. Talk to you soon.